0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tau Foundation.
2: Hey, you're about to listen to an episode of The Colin McEnroe Show from August 9th, 2018. Thank you all for coming. My name is Sally Vaughn. I'm the mayor of Amity Island. Many of you knew my dad, Larry Vaughn, who was also mayor for many years until he was killed by a bluefish.
1: It was totally a shark.
2: Well, now that's just your opinion. What I'm here to talk about today are some of the crazy rumors and fake news you've been circulating about sandworms from outer space, 1,300 feet long with huge gaping mouths full of curved teeth resembling crystalline knives. Bottom line, no sandworms. The beaches are open. Go enjoy this beautiful weekend.
1: What are those noises?
2: The ocean wind likes to play tricks on us. One thing I did want to say, and this has nothing to do with the sandworms, which don't exist anyway, but just as a precaution, try not to use the sand part of the beach.
3: What do you mean, the sand part of the beach?
2: Well, you can go in the water. The water is great. Um, They don't seem to like the water. And by they, I mean the the, the bluefish and the rocks. You can definitely go on the rocks. The jetties. The jetties are very underrated. You know, you never go home and go, wow, the jetties got in everything. My hair, the car, between my toes, and my crop.
1: Just tell us. Is it safe? Safe
2: is such a relative word. My aunt was a relative, and she was killed by a slab of plate glass controlled by a devil baby. So you never know, is my point. You know, walk on the beaches, but not rhythmically. Vary your steps so there's absolutely no pattern. That should make you harder to detect. And use sunscreen. And sandscreen. Here's some more information about sand. And now, the guy who learned the hard way not to eat the pecan sandies near the worm nests. Colin McEnroe.
3: Well, that's right, they look like cookies, but they're not. All right, well, we're not going to be talking about sandworms anymore today, but we are going to be talking about sand, and we're going to be talking about sand in a way that surprises you. Uh, It's going to surprise you just in terms of, well, actually, why don't I introduce the guest, and and then he'll surprise you. Uh, We have a whole bunch of guests who are going to be on here today. A little bit later, you're going to meet uh, one of the world champion sand sculptors. But we have to get a little bit less fanciful, more serious here at the beginning. Uh, Joining us now uh, is the author of the World in a Grain, the Story of Sand and How It transforms Civilization, Vince Beiser. Um, Vince Beiser, I think the best way to begin here is to say that after, well, when I say natural resources, when I say maybe limited natural resources, people think oil, maybe they think, well, forestry, but really after air and water, as you point out, the thing we use the next most of is
1: sand. Explain how that can be. How can sand be so important? All right, thanks, Colin. Yeah, it's a, it's a really crazy thing when you first encounter it. But in fact, we use more sand than anything else, as you said. And the reason for that is our cities are made out of sand. I and mean, if you look around you right now, the floor that's beneath you, the walls that are around you, the whole building that you're sitting in is probably made out of concrete, at least partly out of concrete. And concrete is really nothing but sand and gravel that's been stuck together with cement. So if you think about it, Pretty much every building being built anywhere from beijing to lagos every shopping mall every apartment block every office tower is really just a huge pile of thousands of tons of sand and it doesn't stop there all the roads that connect all those buildings all of the highways and paved roads whether they're asphalt or concrete also made of sand the windows in all those buildings are made of glass and glass is just sand that's been melted down the silicon chips that power our computers and our cell phones also made out of sand and those are only some of the the biggest and most obvious ways that we use sand but actually sand shows up in all kinds of other things we use sand in there's sand in your toothpaste there's sand in cosmetics there's sand in paint There's probably, Colin, I hate to tell you this, but there is sand in your underwear right now.
3: It's the the elastics, right?
1: Exactly. The elastic band that makes it snap into place is made out of silicone, which is also derived from sand. Um, Now, Vince,
3: right now I'm having a lovely glass of wine. You're not going to tell me there's sand in my wine, are you?
1: I'm afraid there's sand in your wine. So not only, of course, is the bottle the wine came in made out of sand and the glass that you're probably drinking it out of, but also uh, the uh, colloidal silica, which is another sand derivative, is used as what they call a fining agent in wine. There's no getting away from it. Actually, you might be the person who can answer one of the great mysteries of life. What the hell is silica gel? It's like, you
3: know, why is there something, some little packet of something in my Nexium bottle?
1: Right. So silica, so most, when we talk about sand, sand, the word sand really just means small bits of any hard substance, right? So you can have there's sand that's made of ground up seashells, there's sand that's made of volcanic rock that's been shattered. That's why like Hawaii has those famous black sand beaches or some places you see like pink sand, those are crushed up shells. But most of the sand in the world, the sand that we're mostly concerned about is quartz sand, and quartz is a form of silicon dioxide also known as silica. And silica can take many forms. You can make it into silicon and silicone, and also silica gel, which is used as a as a desiccant. It's a thing that it absorbs water. So they throw it into like your packets of snacking seaweed to absorb moisture to keep that that seaweed crispy.
3: We haven't uh, made the point yet, but obviously you've put two and two together listening to Vince and understand that uh, people who have breast enhancements uh, they have sand. Uh, that's silicone, right? Silicone is sand. Yep. I mean, if, if they happen to be uh, silicon-based anyway. So, I mean, with that kind of appetite for sand, and the big appetite is the first stuff you were talking about. It's concrete. It's glass. It's everything that we build stuff out of. Uh, it's roads. Um, it may not surprise people. We're running out of sand. Although it was kind of surprising to read in your book that Saudi Arabia is worried about running out of sand.
1: Yeah, this is the crazy thing. I mean, people have a hard time wrapping their heads around it because sand seems like it's everywhere and like there's no limit to it. But at the end of the day, it's a finite resource like anything else. There's a lot of it, but eventually there is a limit. And one of the reasons is people always say, well, what about the deserts? How can a place like Saudi Arabia be worried about it? The reason for that is the number one thing by far that we use sand for is concrete. Okay, we use concrete uses up more sand than all those other uses we've talked about put together. But desert sand is no good for making concrete. Desert sand is basically useless. And the reason for that is it's been eroded by wind rather than water, and as a result of that different uh, erosion process, those grains of desert sand they're they're kind of rounded and smooth, and that they don't lock together the way to form a stable structure which you need when you're making something out of concrete. So the sand that you find on the bottom of rivers or the bottom of lakes or in floodplains, it's, it's sharper and more angular. So it, it works much better. It's, it's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack of marbles as opposed to trying to build something out of a stack of little tiny bricks.
3: So when people want something that much, need it that much, it becomes that precious, uh, then uh, people's worst instincts come out. And people's worst instincts include theft, violence, murder. You found all of those uh, wrapped into the story of sand. Maybe we should just talk a little bit about India for a second, where I think as of the time of the writing of the book anyway, I think 70 people had been murdered uh, over sand. What's going on? And there's a sand mafia. Explain this.
1: Yeah, it's a crazy thing. That's what they call them in the Indian press, the sand mafia. But in a nutshell, there's so much demand for sand in India because uh, what's happening there, as in so much of the developing world, is cities are exploding. Like, Like I said, you need sand to build cities, and cities are growing at a pace and on a scale beyond anything that's ever happened before. Hundreds of millions of people pouring out of the countryside and into cities. So there's so much demand for it that uh, it's become a very lucrative industry, and organized crime has moved into it in a lot of places. Um, and they do what organized crime does everywhere, to to get away with stealing sand or mining sand from you know, environmentally protected areas. Uh, they pay off police. They pay off government officials. And if you really get in their way, they will kill you. In fact, probably hundreds of people have been murdered over sand in the last few years, and that includes... I'm talking about police officers. I'm talking about government inspectors, environmental activists, journalists. Uh, people have been hacked to death with machetes, burned to death, crushed with, uh, run over with, with sand moving equipment. And it's at its worst in India. That's really where I I sort of got into this whole uh, story in the first place. I went there to investigate a particular murder. Um, but it's also, that people have also been killed in Kenya, in Indonesia in several other countries around the world. And not I hasten to add this is not happening as far as I know here in the U.S. But in, in a lot of other countries around the world, it's a big problem.
3: We should say this uh, India section, section of your book. I mean, it wasn't an abstraction at a certain point. Uh, you actually wound up face to face with one of the putative murderers of the murdered man uh, that you were there to learn more about. And that person was not happy to see you uh, in the place and, and anybody not else who was all. with you. Maybe you want to mention a little all. bit more of that. You were there. I mean, basically, these are people who are mining sand out of land that they don't own.
1: Exactly. So what happened there was, it was it was this one particular murder, like I said, and it's it's pretty typical actually of the killings. But I decided to focus on this one, you know, sort of to to tell the bigger story through this this particular story. And what had happened there was a village called Noit, uh, called Raipur, which is about an hour's drive south of Delhi, and Delhi, of course, is a giant megalopolis, you know, over ten million people, growing incredibly fast, and there's a huge demand from the building industry there for sand. So in this particular village, a local sand mafia, just a bunch of local goons, had seized control of about 200 acres of this village's land. And they tore up all the crops, stripped away all the topsoil, and started digging out the sand to sell to builders in Delhi. Well, so there was this one particular guy named Paliram Ram Chohan, who's a bit of a village leader. And he tried to get them to stop, you know, uh, organize demonstrations. And he would go to the local courts and go to the local media, do everything he could to try to get these guys to stop. Because what they were doing was 100% illegal. It was not their land, uh, first of all. And second of all, uh, there are environmental regulations against sand mining in that area. So no question it was totally illegal. Nonetheless, because there's so much corruption in India, he couldn't get them. He couldn't get anyone to take action. But after a while, after he'd been going on like this for a while, one of the sand miners took him aside and said, listen, you're really starting to annoy us. Um, You're starting to cause problems for us. And if you don't stop it, we're going to kill you. But he didn't stop. He kept on. And sure enough, about a week after he'd received this threat, three guys burst into his home while he was taking a nap and shot him dead in his own bed. So a little while after this happened, I went over... You know, I was reporting on this story, so I went down to this to this village and met with Paley Ram's family, his widow and his kids, and so on, and you know, heard the whole story from them. And then when we were done talking, I asked one of his sons, um, a guy named Akash Chohan, if he could show me, you know, where this the sand mine was. And he said, "Sure, absolutely." So I went out there with with him, with the son, with my interpreter, and with. Uh, our driver, who was just you know some guy that we'd hired in in Delhi that morning just to drive us around, we really had no stake in this whole in this whole business at all. But we go out there and we go driving around, and it's this huge area. I mean, it's 200 acres of basically just an open pit mine. And we're driving around, and we get deep into it, and we stop and hop out of the car, taking pictures and sort of having a look around. And then all of a sudden, Akash taps me on the shoulder and says, "Uh oh." That's Sonu. That's the guy who threatened my father, who's probably one of the killers, coming this way. And I look down the road, and coming our way fast is this big, burly guy, followed by three other burly guys carrying shovels. And so we say, okay, time to go. And we start making our way back towards the car, but we're too slow. And just as we're getting back to the car, Sonu comes up, sees Akash, the son of you know the guy that he'd threatened, and says in Hindi, starts... Swearing at him in a very non-public radio kind of way that I won't repeat here, and basically saying, "What are you doing here? Didn't you get the message?" kind of thing. And so my interpreter kind of tried to wave him off. He's just like, "Ah, oh, listen, we were just having a look around, and now we're leaving." We all get back in the car. Sonu yanks open the door and pulls out our poor driver by the you know by his shirt collar and says, "You're not going anywhere." So now, of course, the three of us are obliged to hop out of the car and. There's this kind of standoff between the four of us and um, and these sand miners. Again, one of whom is probably uh, is the guy who threatened Akash's father, and you know was most likely involved in his killing. I can't understand exactly what's going on, but it's clearly a very heated exchange. And basically, as I was told later, they're saying, you know, what are you doing here? What did you see? We didn't. You know, we we're just having here just having a look around. We're going to go now. You're not going anywhere. This is going on. It's getting tenser and tenser. And then one of the guys, one of the shovel-toting goons, suddenly notices me and twigs on my white face amidst all these Indians. And here's... You talk about white privilege. This is where... This is really it in action. Because in India, you can get away, unfortunately, with killing another Indian. And if you've got enough money to, to pass around a few bribes, you can get away with that. If you kill a foreigner, if you kill an American or like me... You were probably going to have a lot more trouble, so that just kind of everybody sort of realizes like, wait a minute, what what's this foreigner doing here? How did he get here? What's going on? Hmm. And it just kind of stops everybody. Everybody gets kind of confused for a minute. And the four of us look at each other, take advantage of this like moment of confusion, jump back in the car, and we take off.
3: And this story kind of gives you a sense of the urgency of this and the volatility of it, and and. In your book, The World in a Grain, uh, Vince Beiser, you you document the existence of sand pirates, people who are mining sand illegally, people who are uh, battling over sand or hoarding sand in some cases. Uh, I, I would assume we're getting pretty close to... Having the sand equivalent of OPEC, um, OSEC. <laughs> Although I guess the difference is one. One thing that you kind of point out is sand is harder to move around. If you have to, if you have to take it from one place and it, that's far distant from the place you want to use it to build a road or a building or whatever, that really gets to be a resource-intensive thing all by itself, just in terms of what it takes to get the sand to travel a long distance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is there's no there's no like saudi arabia of sand there's no like sort of global powerhouse in the sand industry and that's because one of the reasons we use so much of it is because you can find it all over the place and just about every country has sand you can use for construction just about every state in the united states does too but you're exactly right the problem really comes in when you have to move it because sand you need huge amounts of this stuff to build a building right or a highway or whatever um, and it's very it's very heavy. It's very expensive to transport. So as soon as you start having to go more than a few miles afield to find the sand that you need, it starts to get really, really expensive. And this is part of why there's so much environmental damage being done because you want to harvest your sand somewhere close by. So, all, so you want to get it from the rivers, the lakes, the beaches that are close to the big cities. And that's why those places are getting hit so hard. Now, all that said, uh, you, uh, even though it's so expensive to transport sand, things have gotten, like, there's, there's so much demand and there's, supplies are getting so short in some places that here in Los Angeles, in Southern California where I live, we are actually importing some sand from Canada because it's gotten so hard to get the sand we need from local sources that it's starting to actually make economic sense to ship it all the way down from Canada. And that's starting to happen more and more around the world.
3: You know, you address this at the end of the book, but reading the book and reading about the way that it is becoming an increasingly fought over resource, I kept thinking, well, there must be something else we can build stuff out of, right? I mean, synthetic materials, although a lot of synthetic materials um, contain sand. uh, But I don't know, bamboo, something. So, So what's the future of this? I mean, at a certain point, it becomes, one would think, kind of, you know counterproductive or at least way too expensive to be like hauling sand over long distances to build more things. Obviously we could build fewer things, we could use fewer things. That's
1: that'd be one nice way to go about this. But is are there alternative materials? So there are. I mean, I I think there's really two levels to the to that question and you and you really hit on them both. One is can we replace sand with something else? And the answer is yes, but only to a certain point. So there, there is a lot of research going on around the world, um, different folks looking at ways to build concrete, to make concrete that uses less sand, for instance, or that lasts much longer so you don't have to replace it and use as much sand. Um, there's also uh, folks who are looking into ways to replace sand in concrete, to use bamboo, for instance, or shredded plastic is another thing, or uh, fly ash, which is the stuff that's left over in coal-burning power plants after the coal's all been burned up. So you can use all those things. Some of those things are already being used. Um, but uh, but so far, they're only making a tiny dent in our sand consumption. And at the end of the day, um, it's kind of a, you'll run back into the same problem. Because the thing is, we use 50 billion tons of sand every year, right? As we said, more than anything else in the world. So even if you found like, oh, we can replace it with bamboo, well, that would mean we'd still have to come up with 50 billion tons of bamboo every year. And sooner or later, we'd start to run short of bamboo or shredded plastic or whatever it is. Just the sheer volume uh, that, we, that we need and we use, no matter what substance you're talking about, if you're using that much of it every year, you're going to run into problems. Yeah. Panda, so to pand- my mind... Pandas would starve. The uh. Pandas would starve. Exactly. Nobody wants starving pandas. Well, you 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 kind of sketch out this
3: weird multi spoked vicious cycle, where in fact, you know, we build more stuff, and uh, in, in so doing, often denude the landscape in ways that we create more sand, but it's actually useless sand, not the kind of sand that we need. And meanwhile, as we build more stuff, we often obscure the sources of, of useful sand. It's happened right where you live. Right there's a was a place that was. Like a big sand pit out there in the, in the greater LA area.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the thing is, we're, there's still a lot of sand near most cities, but by now, a lot of it is underneath our shopping malls and our freeways, or it's, you know, or our suburban housing developments, or it's right next to developments. So, the place here in LA, uh, there's, a, there's a town called Irwindale, um, which supplied a lot of the sand and gravel that built much of Southern California. Um, But now, so once upon a time, 50 years ago, Irwindale was this little place sort of out in the boonies on the way out on outside of town. And nobody mind cared if there was, you know, heavy equipment operating there 24 hours a day making noise and, you know, belching out diesel exhaust. But now the city has grown and spread out so much that Irwindale is now completely surrounded by suburbs, by really nice, you know, residential areas. And those people don't want to be living next to a giant open pit mine. So as a result, Irwindale is really, there's still some sand mining happening there, but much, much less. And a lot of those sand deposits are now, like I said, literally underneath factories and warehouses and apartments. And nobody really wants to tear those up to get at the sand.
3: All right, so um, the one thing that we haven't talked about, because I'm saving—well, there are many things we haven't talked about, and most of them you're going to have to read Ben Spizer's book to learn more about that book. By the way, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand, and How It Transforms Civilization. But I've been sort of saving uh, dredging, because dredging is its kind of interesting own topic, and there's a way that we can apply it to an environment very near where I'm doing this broadcast from. So we're we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll dredge.
1: Hey,
2: you're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show from August 9th of twenty eighteen.
3: The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand, they wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. That's, of course, Lewis Carroll thinking about sand. Sand is something that needs to be cleared away. In fact, uh, as Vince Beiser can tell you uh, in his book, The World in a Grain, there's plenty of pirates who'd be happy to steal your sand away from you, whether you wanted it or not. But, you know, Vince, as we get ready for this uh, segment, there's also... I think contained in the absurdity of that uh, Walrus and the Carpenter poem, a kind of sense we do have about sand, that it's a nuisance uh, and that it's an irritant and something that we need to get out of our shoes or whatever. Um, and as we get ready to talk about sand uh, sitting in the bottom of a river, it might be worth having you mention that that sand, sand sitting in the bottom uh, of a river probably used to be a mountain, right?
1: That's right, that's what, that's what most sand is. I mean, again, most sand in the world is, is quartz grains, and where most of those come from is they're just they're little tiny bits of mountains that have been broken down, um, you know eroded by, by rain and wind and weather over thousands of years. All the, those elements work away, chip off those little grains, and then the rains wash them down the sides of mountains where they get swept into rivers, and rivers carry them all out to the sea to dropping off, you know, leaving behind sand all along the way. So that's what you usually find at the bottom of rivers.
3: So this sand is, I would assume in some cases, a thing that predates, say, dinosaurs.
1: Can be, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of the sand in the world is millions and millions of years old. So, you know, that's something to think about the next time you're just cursing at it and dumping out of your shoes. Well, speaking of sand that we
3: curse at, I want to do something about, uh, we're going to be joined now by Sarah Page Kurz, a reporter who covers Guilford and Madison here in Connecticut for the Shoreline Times. Uh, So, uh, Sarah, first of all, welcome to our conversation.
0: Thank you so much for
3: having me. So we're going to tell a story of people who didn't want sand in one place and did want sand in another place. That should be a pretty happy story, and it might be a pretty happy story, but there's a lot of wrinkles uh, and ripples in the sand, I guess. So, um, Sarah, let's start with the problem. The pro- there were sort of two problems, right? One of them is sand clogging the mouth of the Housatonic River, and the other problem was maybe not enough sand at the beautiful state acid Beach. So... Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Um, the storms and weather had eroded part of West Beach in Hamanasset and they had a overabundance of sand in the Housatonic River and they decided to move 250,000 yards of sand from the Housatonic River up to Hamanasset and dump it on the beach. Um, the problem was that people started complaining that the sand was um, grayish in color, really hard, and at one point, people were seeing birds that were on the beach that looked ill. Now, when I talked to people from the state, they said that the birds were probably finding more food and were probably... Ill, looking ill, but probably just suffering from overeating. Um, they said over time the sand would bleach out. So they felt very confident. They had tested it. There was uh, PCBs PCB concern in the Housatonic River for years, but they said that the sand had been tested and there was no harm to it. It is, I will tell you, I was there yesterday, it is very, very different sand than the sand you usually see on the On the beach, the beach sand is soft, it is hot, it your feet sink into it. The sand that came from the Housatonic River is hard, it is brown, and it is almost looks like mud right now.
3: All right. Well, so let's go to a sand expert here, Vince Beiser. So there's there. In fact, it sounds like a simple problem with a simple solution. Uh, that's almost never the case. Let's start. Let's go back to the river for a second, Vince. One of the problems, I think, with like hauling stuff up uh, out of the bed of a river uh, is not only stuff that's there that you don't want, like PCBs or something like that, but also that there's a whole ecosystem there. Right. There's all kinds of creatures who are living at the bed of the, on the bed of, and below the bed of the river
1: yeah, there can be. I don't know, you know, i I don't know anything about the Housatonic River specifically, but um what happens with a lot of in a lot of places when you dredge up sand for the rim, from the river is you can do a lot of damage to whatever was living in that river. So, first of all, if there's any kind of fish or plant life that's living on the river bottom, obviously, you've just wiped them out because you've just literally sucked up the river bottom itself. Also, in the process, you stir up a lot of sand and muck and silt. Which clouds up the water and that can also suffocate any fish that are swimming around in that water and also block sunlight from getting through the water down to uh, to whatever kind of plants or vegetation is growing in the river. Again, I don't know you know if that happened in the Housatonic, but it definitely uh, happens in a lot of other rivers around the world.
3: Sarah, I know this thing cost the taxpayers 9.5 million dollars. It sounds like nobody's happy after their 9.5 million dollars are spent. Um, no. yeah, go ahead.
0: No, and I will tell you that I was following social media at the time. People were really concerned. And my latest article was done last February, and people were taking winter walks on the beach when it's empty, and they were very concerned about it. Now, I specifically, there was one story that they would bring in some some of the regular, quote-unquote, beach sand and cover it up, but that was not going to happen. It's just going to be left the way it is. I'm just wondering if that sand—they re- they always said it was a really good use of the sand, that they need to stretch the river, so why not put the sand to use? But my question always was, is that really the place to put river sand when it's so different than regular beach sand?
3: And we should also say that they uh, people have been cl- complaining that it stinks, right?
0: Well, they did at the beginning. It does not smell. I'm wondering if it smelled when it first was put down and then the smell evaporated. So it does not smell. But there's a lot of material in it, a lot of shells and a lot of debris in the sand.
3: We should say, Vince, that, I mean, every project is different. Every environment and ecosystem is different. It's not necessarily the case that something like this is a bad idea, nor is all sand mining evil that's done by pirates.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, listen. We need sand. Absolutely, we need to to mine sand to to build stuff that uh, that we need. All the buildings and and infrastructure of our modern world. But um, we need to be. It needs to be done carefully, like any other kind of extractive industry. You need to be careful about how you do it, and you need to be careful about what happens. I mean, in 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 this particular industry, beach renourishment, you need to. It sounds really obvious, like sand, you take sand from here and move it over to <clears throat> to there. Everybody wins. But indeed, a lot of the... This kind of thing, by the way, happens all over the country and all over the world, this kind of beach replenishment, because beaches are eroding so badly. And I can tell you, it's it's really interesting to hear about the concerns that folks there have about the, the color and the consistency of the grains. I I, I did some reporting in southern Florida... Uh, for the book about this exact same issue about beach renourishment there because basically all the most famous beaches in Florida Miami Beach uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale, they're all disappearing and they're having to be artificially replenished just like your beach there But there they are I, I guess because the tourist industry is so important. They are incredibly picky about Allowing about which grains get deposited on their beaches, they have to be exactly the right consistency. They have to be exactly the right color. There's a very specific color grading scale that they have to match to. So, um, and also an, another thing that they that they um, uh, watch out for in Florida is is the impact on wildlife that uses those beaches. So they have a lot of sea turtles down there that come up onto the beaches to lay their eggs. Now, those sea turtles can't make it up the beach if the beach is too steep. So they actually have to to be very careful not to make the, the grade of the new beach too steep, because otherwise it could do a number on those sea turtles. I don't know if there's a similar kind of impact that, that this sand this project is having on your, your seabirds, but well, that'd be something to look yeah, at. I
3: certainly love the state's explanation that the seabirds are just overeating. They've got indigestion. I'm not sure that that's going to hold water or sand. We have to take a little break here. Thanks to Sarah Page Kurz, who covers Guilford and Madison for the Shoreline Times. Uh, keep on keeping on. Your journalism is very important. Thanks to v- Vince Beiser. There's so much more to be mined, as it were, out of this book, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transforms civilization. We have barely scratched the surface of the sand. We want to meet uh, want to have a little fun with you at the end, and we find this really fun person who is a world champion, international superstar of sand sculpting. That's who you're going to talk to, or actually, that's who I'm going to talk to in just a few seconds.
1: I wish that I could just wish away my feelings, but I can't. I don't like sand, I don't like sand, sand, sand. That is something I know I cannot do.
2: You're listening to a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show from August 9th of 2018. Today's show was produced by... Hold on, I gotta dump out my shoes. How did all that get in there? Just from talking about sand? Today's show was produced by Sandy Pants and me, Kyone Wolf. Jason Perez brought donuts on his last day. The part of Bill Curry was played by Thomas Hayden Church. And now, back to Colin.
3: A show that was all about sand would not be complete if we did not talk to a professional sand sculptor. And we are lucky uh, to get one of the legendary professional sand sculptors, Sue McGrew. A household name, if you're a sand sculpting fan, exploded under the professional sand sculpting scene in early 2008. And she's enjoyed since then a meteoric rise to international prominence. I'm going to take a wild guess, Sue McGrew, that you're calling me from some kind of sand sculpting-related event. Where, where are you right now?
4: I'm in Vancouver, Washington right now. I'm at the Clark County Fair.
3: And do you have, uh, I assume you are doing a sand sculpture there as opposed to just eating corn dogs or whatever everybody <laughs> yeah. else is doing.
4: Yeah, yeah. I'm not eating corn dogs. I'm uh, making a sand sculpture, working with a company called Sandscapes right now, and we've made this awesome sculpture for the fair because the fair just turned 150.
3: So what is the sculpture of? What kind of scene uh, are you giving them?
4: Well, what better way to celebrate than to have a giant cake and farm animals? So it's this lovely scene with a bunch of happy animals diving into this cake. And yeah, I'm getting close to being done now. I think I have two more days, a couple more animals to add in. and.
3: Uh, okay, when you say two more days, how long have you been at it?
4: Oh, so in total, I'll be here 10 days.
3: Wow. Yeah,
4: it's a a long time to be at the fair
3: Patience, patience is part of this art. We're going to put some pictures of your work up On on our website at WNPR.org slash Colin So people can see it, it's almost impossible In an audio environment to describe How elaborate, large scale Detailed all this is So like on this particular occasion Is any particular animal giving you trouble Uh, Like something you've struggled A little bit to get the wool of the sheep uh, To express itself in sand or something
4: That's a good question, so I had a problem with this chicken. I started carving a chicken, and apparently I don't know what a chicken looks like because I carved it, and it looked like a parrot. (laughs) So I was fighting with that. And and so when I'm on the fairgrounds, I'm in a black hole. I have no reception, so I can't go online and look up pictures. Well, then I realized, well, I'm at the fair. I can just wander off and go find a chicken and go take a picture of that.
3: <laughs> right. Getting a chicken to pose is hard. They, yeah, exactly. It's yeah, a little still.
4: bit difficult. They don't like to stay still for the camera. So, yeah.
3: So, I have a whole bunch of questions about like how you found your way into this. And we should say that you travel all over the world now, uh, competing in these uh, sculptures. You, you've been, uh, uh, you starred on the Travel Channel's TV show Sandmasters. I mean, this isn't some little hobby that you have. This really is your life, your lifestyle, your career. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like, when you were a little kid, were you just like you know, filling up a bucket of wet sand and turning it upside down on the? Were there signs of genius early on? Is the question I'm asking.
4: I totally had a sandbox when I was like two or three years old, and I loved it. But back then, it wasn't like I didn't do sand sculptures. Mm. I did like moats. Like yeah. my specialty was digging into the sand and filling it with water. Right, and that was like all I did. It was so good. And actually, I didn't spend that much time on the beach because I'm from the, from Tacoma, mm-hmm. Washington. And we don't have sandy beaches like you think of, like, you know, the nice, powdery, like, beachy beach sand. It's like rocks and pebbles. So I really didn't do that much sand sculpting until I ran into a professional sand sculptor. And uh, this guy, Bert Adams, he runs an event called Sand of the City. I was still in high school and ran into him building this crazy cool sand culture. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, Lucky for me, he had a sandbox right next to him for the little kids to play in. So I just kind of hopped in there with the little kids, started making myself a little dragon. And he comes over and says, hey, uh, you've got some talent. Why don't you come back tomorrow and I'll show you how to compact sand which is the key to having a really good sand sculpture.
3: I'm wondering if the skill set, if the talent is just the same as it would be for Rodin, you know, for any sculptor, or is there something very specific about, you know, you now compete internationally, you compete at the highest levels, you know all the other uh, sand sculptors. Is there, is there a common thread in this talent that's maybe a little bit different from, you know, um, from tra- different, di- traditional sculpture?
4: Yes. I'm going to say there are a lot of great artists out there, a lot of incredible sculptors. However, it takes a certain amount of grit, like true grit, to like basically put yourself through the conditions that the harsh conditions that we go through as like sand sculptors. Let's say lots and lots of shoveling. Mm -hmm. Like really crazy weather. Anything from rainstorms to like high heat, high humidity. You're working under the sun for like eight hours and that's hard. So it's not like, you know, most I think most artists will sit in their studio you're in your own little space, but as a sand artist, you have to like go out there and carve. Basically it's like carving naked in front of people because people see everything you do. Like they see the rough cuts, they see the finishing, they'll see your mistakes, they'll see your collapses. And I think you know since you're putting a personal piece of yourself out there on the beach, it can be really like nerve-wracking. So I really think it takes a certain a certain type of person, a certain personality to do
3: it. When you compete at some of these festivals and competitions, you are up against sand sculptors from all over the world. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Are you like – because all this takes place – you know, in in a pretty public environment. Are you looking over your shoulder at, you know, Brian Wigglesworth and going, Oh, look at what he's doing. Look at what look at what Ryback from Russia's doing right now. I could take that guy. <laughs> I mean, how competitive does this gap?
4: It really depends on the crowd. Sometimes the competitions can be a little bit competitive or really competitive. But other times I feel like the competitions are just an opportunity for me to really show off what I do to my peers. Yeah. Of course we want to win, but right. I think the artists are so good out there right now that like judging, like judging a competition is like judging apples to oranges to pineapple to a potato. You know, it really depends on what kind of fruit you like in that case. Um, I guess a potato is not the but it's, for like, our purposes, so it's a fruit, but inc- it's so much incredible artwork out there. I feel like the best thing I can do is make the most amazing sculpture for myself and not worry too much about, all the other stuff out there because that would drive you insane. I mean, it has driven me insane before and I have spent many sleepless nights in a hotel room worrying about the next day, but I don't do that anymore because it's just sand.
3: <laughs> but you, you, you used to do that. You used to obsess about I it. I used
4: to. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, I uh, definitely, it really, it used to really stress me out. And then at some point I had to have this like mental shift where it was like, okay, it's a competition and it doesn't matter if I win or not. I just need to make a piece that I'm proud of that people enjoy and go home happy
2: back
3: when it back when it did stress you out what would you be worrying Uh about at night would be a specific figure or just getting the talent to go surging through your fingertips i mean what what would (laughs) what would would worry you
4: okay so i am a horrible procrastinator and i know these competitions are coming up months in advance and i would not prepare like i would not make a sketch know nothing (laughs) until like the very last moment And then I'm coming up with these ideas and brainstorming and my head is just bubbling with all these, okay, well, I do this or do that or blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so, like, thinking about figures and stuff. And I really like it when I'm in a competition, when I get in the zone where, like, I feel like I'm carving and these ideas are coming to me as I'm working. So it's kind of this, like, love-hate relationship with not being prepared but being able to, like, come up with stuff on the fly And just go with it. So that's kind of stressful because I really really know what I'm doing. But at the same time, it's really amazing when you get that thrill when you come up with your idea or your solution to a problem while you're carving and shoveling your shoveling your butt off and sweating under the sun. But then I realized that wasn't that great or healthy of a lifestyle. So now I'm you know (laughs) try try and be a little bit more prepared and a little bit less
3: stressed. Yeah, I hope you're using lots of sunblock while you're doing this. One of the problems, and we'll get a little bit more to that in just a second, but one of the problems with for a sand sculptor is you can't take me on a tour of your greatest creations because they're gone. But we can look at pictures and stuff like that. But what are you most proud of? If you think back to a festival or a competition where you were just on fire, where you just did something that made people go ooh and ah, made the other sculptors go ooh and ah, made you incredibly proud of yourself, you were in the zone What was that? So
4: I did a sculpture a couple years back, and it was basically Jules Verne. Um, uh, Well, a portrait of Jules Verne. And this thing was huge. This was in Taiwan, and it was basically the central piece to the whole event. It was, I don't know, 20 feet tall, 40 feet wide, and working with just beach sand. So here's something about sand depending on the quality of sand you have really determines how vertical, how realistic you can make it. And beach sand is not normally the best sand to use. However, you can still use it. You just have to think about gravity more. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I have to think about gravity. I have to think about working with this piece that's so big that when I'm right next to it carving, it doesn't look like anything like it does from 20 feet below. And that was such a challenge for me. That um, I was really really happy that I was able to make it and make it super impressive.
3: It sounds amazing. You're going <laughs> sumagru from one of these things to the next to the next to the next. So uh-huh. you know how they say sand gets into everything.
4: Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so- I know how sand. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so I assume it's, it's it, Yeah, go ahead. Tell tell me about that.
4: Sand does get into everything.
3: And you're never free of it. Like I could go to the beach and a couple of days later I don't I don't feel sand clinging inside my armpit and it's not stuck to my <laughs> car seat or whatever. But this is just your life, right?
4: Yeah, it's it is my life. There's sand everywhere. I cannot escape it. It is in my phone, my computer. Every bag I own has sand in it. I'll find sand in my socks that I haven't worn for like <laughs> Two
3: weeks. Right. Well you chose this life, so Yeah. Uh- So here's a question. All right. So I've watched Tibetan monks do sand mandalas, you know, which are these obviously very spiritual things that they do, incredibly intricate and ornate and colorful, and then they destroy them immediately. It illustrates something about impermanence. Is there a spiritual component to what you do? I mean, you could be working in a medium where, you know, you could go and show your friends and family the thing that you did. You're working in the same kind of thing. I don't know. Do you have a spiritual connection to it?
4: I like to think I kind of do. I feel like. It's so nice that I get to work in a medium, which I basically build up from the ground. I get my feet in it. I have no shoes on. Basically, my feet are in the sand. I feel like I have a connection to the earth when I do it. And I think sand sculpting is so amazing because even though it's ephemeral, it doesn't last. Every person, like almost every person, young and old, has had an experience playing with it. So for me, it's so cool. You get these people who come up to it, and they're like, wow, that can't be sand. That's No, that's not sand. I'm like, yeah, it is sand. It's basically what you find at the beach. Maybe a little bit finer, but it's got this attraction to it that everyone loves. Everyone can relate to it, and I just love it. It's just such a great medium to really get my hands into. I mean, if, when I'm sand sculpting, I get covered in sand. I'm like, I look like I've been mud wrestling with it or something. I don't know how some people carve and not get a grain of sand on them. Me, I'm completely covered head to toe. So I guess you could say it's kind of, I get very intimate with the fans. <laughs>
3: So, <laughs>
0: because,
3: yeah, and I'm also wondering as you compete on this international circuit. I don't know. Is there sort of a personality that emerges among sand sculptors? I guess what I'm really asking is: end of the day, you're tired, you're sandy, you've been out there all day long. Do you guys go out and with the guy from the Netherlands and and the one from Italy and stuff and just pound a bunch of brews somewhere, oh, or do you? <laughs>
4: of course, it's such a small community who does it worldwide professionally. That it's always like a reunion when you go to an event because you know you you've known these people well some of these people I've known for 10 years plus
3: mm-hmm. and
4: sometimes you won't see them for a couple years and then or you'll see them at every event for one year straight and they're all amazing people with fascinating backgrounds because a lot of the people who get into sand did not start out as artists there are lots of art, uh, people who are engineers architects. Even biologists. And it's weird because we all get drawn into it somehow. We'll see someone doing it and we'll be like, oh, that's really cool. And really, it's the ones who really follow that interest who get into it. It's the ones who are like, whoa, that's really cool. I want to go talk to this person. I want to try it out. I want to get in there and get my hands dirty, even though I'm not, you know, some artist. It's so cool that these people, all these people from all over the world have gotten into this industry. And now we're all friends and basically like a family.
3: Is there a time of year when you switch over to snow and ice or is it just sand all year long?
4: Recently, in the last few years, it's been mostly sand. <laughs> um, I used to do a lot more snow and ice in the winter. <laughs> I guess this year I did, I did snow up in Idaho.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And yeah, I did a bit of snow this year. But it's just a different, it's a different animal. I've done competi- ice competitions in Canada and it's, it's rough, like you're working with tools that could basically slice your arm off or <laughs> the medium that you're working with, ice. It's heavy, it's slippery. I have to maneuver these like 300-pound blocks of ice basically with another partner. And I'm not a, I'm not a big person, so it's really difficult. And if you're working in conditions that sometimes dip below, I, you, I think we didn't go out the day it was negative 40, so hmm. I kept all my fingers and toes. But it can be really intense.
3: Well, I think also a a difference, listening to you talk, too, it strikes me, Sue, that a difference might be the sand can really talk to you. You'll have your feet in the sand. You're working on the sand, right?
4: Exactly. So with sand, I've got like, I'm like in there. I've got my hands in it. But with ice, I always have some sort of layer protection from it because it's just cold. I can't work with it with my bare hands. I have gloves on. I've got boots protecting my toes. I've got layers of jackets on. I love ice because it's beautiful and it's magical in its own way, but sand is just,
2: I don't know, I just love sand.
3: Right. Sand breaks down the barrier between the person and the world. You know, you get get really close to it. It gets inside you. You stand inside it. You've got your feet down in it.
4: And In a way, it kind of represents life in itself because I am going to shovel, I'm going to work my hardest to make the sculpture happen. Even though I know it's going to last, it's not going to last. I will work my butt off, and in the end, it's only up for the certain time that it exists. This is life. We invest our energy into something we know is just for this moment being. And in the end, it will be eroded, it will end up back in the ocean.
3: All we are is dust in the wind. All right. Exactly. Sue McGrew, on that uh, uplifting note, uh, I want to thank you. (laughs) Sue McGrew is a legend in the world of professional sand sculpting. She's competing right now. She'll be competing next week. You'll see her on television. We were so lucky to have her on the radio. Sue, thanks for joining us.
4: Oh, thank you so much, Colin. It was a pleasure talking.
3: And that concludes our show about sand. I want to thank everybody who helped out here. I'm going to brush myself off now. And thanks especially to Jonathan McNichol, McPants, who has sand in his McPants now.